this, 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 this show is brought to you by Safety FM. What's up, peeps? Today we're talking to the legendary Dave Snowden. Let's jump into the intro and we'll tell you some more about it. The problem in safety isn't deviation, it's complexity. Health and safety has gone mad. Health and safety is trying to unpick having gone mad in the past. There's no one solution or one problem. The problem is that we are looking for one solution. Does the structure of the team allow them to flourish? Feel safe enough to be uncomfortable. The environment defines our behaviors. People aren't the problem, they're the solution. Rebranding safety, crushing the stereotype. Brought to you by Risk well, What's up peeps, welcome back to Rebranding Safety. Rebranding Safety is the YouTube channel I'm podcast doing exactly what it says on the tin we had to change the perception of the safety so if you're new here hit that subscribe button on all those algorithm buttony thingamajiggies so today we're talking to the legendary dave snowden the creator of the Kenevin framework um and also the presenter i suppose and the producer of a pretty awesome youtube channel um so go check out them as well they'll be in the description and also a consultant in the world of complexity theory an academic and you know one of those really cool people but also like those people that you have to listen to a few times and go what did he just say and that's probably what you're going to pick up from me today um in this podcast where there's quite a few times where i just go i'm not really sure i understood what he actually just said um so get your googles ready to check what words uh those what those words mean and um I hope you understand it a lot better than I did. And I hope you find it a good conversation. Dave's very good at uh, giving good stories uh, to tell, to, to get his point across. So that's very helpful, particularly for people like me. Uh, before we jump into it, though, just a quick shout out to Paradigm Human Performance, um, the sponsors of YouTube channel and podcast as well. Um, Paradigm Human Performance are human and organizational performance experts. They are huge and a great company. Um, I absolutely love what they're doing. They do some great stuff. Um, so if you're in that position in your organization where you kind of ticked most of your boxes, you've built a good good foundation but now you, you need to take that next step and you need to start looking at how your humans and your organizations perform together and try and improve that then paradigm human performance are the people you are looking for if you're not quite sure though go check out their website and on there you can sign up for the learning organization webinar which runs every other thursday um, so you go check that out great opportunity to learn and once you've logged in you get access to all of the backlog of webinars as well so go and check that out um, all the description email address phone number everything you need for paradigm in the description below all the description everything you need for paradigms in the description below you know what i mean I just find a one shout out for, from us. Um, if you've been listening to us for a long time and you follow us on LinkedIn, uh, primarily that's where we, we do most of the stuff. You'd have probably picked up in uh, just before Christmas uh, 2021, we announced that we are launching our consultancy and going full-time with Rebranding Safety. So go check out rebrandingsafety.com. There's some new stuff on there. Um, we'd love to work with you if we can. Um, um, but otherwise... I hope you enjoy the podcast. All right, David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for coming on. Yeah, pleasure to be here. Um, I shall let you introduce your yourself. Uh, oh, my device has just stopped working, apparently. Um, one second, technical issues. There we go. Um, can you still hear me, right? Yeah. 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 So my little device said it stopped working, but it's working again now. 
Um, why don't you why don't you kick us off, Dave, with a, with an introduction to yourself in case anyone doesn't really know you and what you do, um, and then we'll get into into what you do. Okay, Dave Snowden. Um, I'm director of the Canavan Centre, um, which is a research group that looks at the application of natural science to social systems. Um, that includes complexity science, but it's not the only thing we work on. And really, you can contrast that with case-based approaches. So we start with natural science as a constraint. So that's one function. And chief scientific officer of Cognitive Edge. And there I was and am the main designer on the world's first distributed ethnographic tool. That came out of work on counterterrorism in DARPA days before and after 9-11. I designed and built the risk assessment and horizon scanning system for Singapore. So I've, I've been always been at this intersection of theory and practice, I think is the best way to describe what I do. When you say like natural science, do you want to explain that for anyone that doesn't know? Like, okay, so part, part of the problem we got with most management science, which I would put in distinct inverted commas, yeah, as a subset of social science, is it tends to take what's called an inductive approach. Okay, yeah. So what it does is it says, let's find 50 or 60 companies who are profitable. We'll then do a lot of interviews and study them and identify things they've got in common. And then we'll put that as an industrial recipe. Yeah, and say, if you do these things, you two will be successful. Yeah. Right Now, that's what we call the confusion of correlation with causation. Okay. Yeah, the fact that the majority of, you know, CEOs of American Fortune 500 companies play golf. It doesn't follow that golf lessons are a substitute for management education. Um, and there's other false correlations. I mean, the one I love, which is probably not a false correlation, is that suicides by drowning or peaks in suicides by drowning directly correlate with the, re the release of Nicolas Cage movies. But I can understand that one. Right? So false correlation is a real problem. Right. So what we do, and it's worse than that. I mean, you get books like Good to Great, which is hugely popular, where he doesn't even respect his cases. He just cherry picks the bits of his understanding of the cases which support the religious thesis he's advocating. So you've got this real problem yeah, of the, the whole book market at the moment when management methods come from this is catchy title, simple proposition, grab some cases which you claim support your theory and run it out. And that's very dubious. It was dubious before COVID. After COVID, it's even more dangerous because you shouldn't be you know, using recipes from periods of stability and periods of instability. So the question is, how do you create a degree of certainty? Right? And the way you can create a degree of certainty is by using natural science as an enabling constraint. Yeah, so to give an illustration, we know that if it's called inattentional blindness, we know if you give radiologists a batch of x-rays ask them to look for anomalies. And on the final x-ray, you put a picture of a gorilla, which is 48 times the size of a cancer nodule. Then on average, 83% of radiologists will not see it, even though their eyes physically scan it. But once you know that, there's no point in assuming that a systems analyst or a consultant can interview people and find out what's going on, because they'll only see what they expect to see. So what, that was where we moved into distributed ethnography. So we present a situation to say the whole workforce in real time, we get results back in real time, and we can identify the 17% who are seeing the world differently and go and talk with them. Yeah. 
So I think that that's an illustration of the point. So there's a whole body of methods and tools based on this. But if you start with natural science, that's been subject to repeatable experiments by people other than the author. So you can say, we know this is the case. So let's work within that as a constraint. Yeah. And then we'll see what happens in practice. And, and that gives us a higher level of certainty. I think it's interesting because what, what you kind of say about like the, the catchy book titles, um, my profession, that health and safety risk profession, whatever you want to call it, is suffering from that massively. Like mm. is safety differently or, or just, you know, safety anarchists are the, probably the two most provocative ones that, that seem to come up uh, in my brain that then everyone reads it, loves it, goes on. And, and you know what? Yeah, fair enough. I'm one of those people that quite enjoy it and, and think, yeah, okay, that that's, that's fair enough. But it does make me wonder, like when I listen to a lot of your stuff and I'm like, well, I, I think I get what he's saying, but I, I, I think there's this, there's this big issue where we're not, we're not kind of trained in our profession to think about to the level of, of, yeah. of education understanding that, that you kind of have and that others have. I can give you an illustration. So Mary Boone and I were talking the other day to a book agent. Yeah. So we're taking the Harvard article and, you know, it's interesting. That was a front cover article on Harvard and most people can understand that. Mm. And it went through a huge amount of editing to get it there. So we, <laughs> You know, this needs to become a book. So we chat with a book agent and we go through the proposal. And he says, no, 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 that's no good for me. And we go, why? He said, there's far too many ideas in this. He said, what I need is one simple idea, a catchy title and lots of cases. And I want one of those out of you every two years. And then we'll make money on the, on the speaker fees. That's and then, then you look around and you can see, you know, that will... You know, the Taleb, I mean, there's a whole bunch of people you can see they're in that cycle, right? And the trouble is that doesn't develop the theory, the field. And what it does is it creates this constant fat adoption and abandonment cycle. Mm. And I mean, that really frustrated me. I was a general manager in data sciences and then strategy. And then in when IBM took us over, I got given a free floating, go and do whatever you want, provided it's interesting role, which is nice when you get it. And um, throughout that period, I mean, I remember we went through, you know, total quality management, business process re-engineering, Six Sigma, Blue Ocean strategy, learning organization. Yeah, I could go on and now it's our job, right? And each one promises to solve the problems of life, the universe and everything. Any educated person knows the answer to that. It's 42 anyway. <laughs> and, you know, it involves millions of dollars to consultants to adopt it and pick it up and run it. And then the whole cycle starts again two or three years later. Mm -hmm. So I got really frustrated with that. Um, so, for example, business process re-engineering, I actually set up a business to do BPR and SAP implementation back in the 80s, yeah, when it was first coming out. And I was considered eccentric for doing it, all right, which I find rather ironic, right? Um, and... You know, that we, we reached the limits of what that would do. Now, the secret is not then to say we abandon it and replace it with something new. The secret is to say we've reached the limits. So we now know where it works well. Yeah. And we need to do something new on the other side of the boundary. Mm -hmm. And that's actually the origins of the Kinevin framework. It okay. was you need to understand that different things work in different contexts. And it's where I am with the Agile movement at the moment. I'm having, you know, I'm, fairly unpopular with at least one person at the moment and possibly more 
for saying we've got to talk about reinventing agile, agile to beyond agile. This is complete nonsense. Mm. Yeah, nobody's even made agile work yet. And the trouble is we're not working at the right level of granularity. So I'd say the same, you know, you've got safety one, safety two, I'm pretty sure somebody's got safety three out yet. Uh, when, when you produce safety 5.0, you know you're degenerating into insanity, right? Um, the reality is there are two or three key things and probably the most important thing, which is one of the things we focus on, is to measure attitudes because attitudes are lead indicators, compliance is a lag indicator. Mm. Now, if you can measure attitudes and you can measure it, you, you know, use a bit technical language fractally. So I can show attitudes at a company level, but I can also show it at a division level or a group working party level, all from the same source data. Then you can very quickly say, well, actually, we need to shift in this direction. This is called a vector, vector theory of change, right? So you can say, we're kind of like here, we need to be more there. And then you look at the various observations and you say, well, we need more of these and fewer of those. Now, that way you start to shift the organization. So the overall attitude to safety is hugely improved. And then compliance becomes less of a problem. Now, again, that's an example of, of this naturalizing sense-making approach. You start with Cal, this is the problem. What do we know from the theory? Yeah. Um, well, we, we know from a whole body of stuff that human beings make decisions with their brain, their body, their social interactions. We know attitudes are a key part of that. We actually know that apprentices, apprenticeship is a key part of it. And to extend it, we also know that tolerated failure is the most successful method of learning. Mm. And we know that stories of failure spread faster than stories of success. Mm. Right, so once we know that, we need to set up environments in which people fail safely. And we need to create worst practice databases, not best practice databases, because people might pay attention to them. Yeah? And then there's a whole body of methods which go with that. So th this stuff is actually quite a logical process in terms of the way it works. It's kind of, and that's the fascinating thing you kind of say there is just like, just trying to bring it back to my layman's kind of understanding and like, hopefully I've, I've understood it rightly as you're, because you're rooting it in that natural science, you've kind of rooted it in the people being the natural element of an organisation. Is that right? Have I understood? Yeah, well, and the system itself. Um, so to give another illustration, we know that how people connect matters more than what they are. Mm. Right? So if you want to change people, change their connectivity. Trying to change individuals is just too hard to do at scale. And I'm not sure it's ethical anyway. I had this debate with Peter Senge in the days when he was prepared to talk with ordinary mortals. He isn't anymore. And um, he said, but we change the system one person at a time. And I said, well, we haven't got time to do that. Yeah. It, it's, not, it's not a way of doing it. And, and actually, it's not very effective. And I don't think it's ethical. If you change, if you change connectivity, everything changes. Mm. And then there's things we can do. So, for example, one of the really successful approaches in military environments and hospital environments it's what's called a crew, not a team. Yeah. Yep. So in a crew, people are trained in role and role expectation. So you can assemble a crew without need for people to go through forming, norming, storming or whatever, because they know the interactions. Crews are defined by interactions between roles, not by personal qualities. Now, that actually is really important in terms of safety. I mean, mm -hmm. and to give another illustration, we did lot of work on ritual now we know a lot about the way ritual works for cognitive activation All right so let me rewind and go through that so i'll take you through the logical process 
So we, the reason that you don't see a gorilla on, on an X-ray is you're only scanning 5% of what's in front of you. And then your that triggers a series of brain, body, and social memories. It's a combination of all three. Um, the minute you get a pattern or a, a, effectively a blending of those memories into a pattern which appears to fit, that's what you apply. So you do a first fit pattern match, not a best fit pattern match. That's how people make decisions. Yeah. And in evolutionary terms, overall, it works out for the best, which is why we do it that way. We haven't got time to scan everything. Now, once you get that, you can say, well, actually, what ritual does is it changes which 5% you scan. Right? So ritual changes cognitive, so it changes cognitive activation. Right? So, for example, in one case, when we were looking at working on truck driver safety, yeah, I mean, we did two things. So, first of all, we put university students in the cabs of lorries for three weeks to capture stories from lorry drivers. That was really cheap research. Yeah. The lorry driver, you know, lorry driver could use them as slave labor if they wanted, provided it was legal. Um, and they just got to know each other. So we got stuff which nobody else had got. I mean, we actually found amphetamine use was three times what people expected. And we discovered it was actually linked to running too close on the tachyograph card which was causing the wrong sort of stress, oh my God. right? So we found that, all right? But we also found that I think the vast majority of accidents were happening within 10 minutes of the lorry arriving at its destination at the harbour. Yeah, so the lorry driver would get out, would unpack the lorry, and it was in those first 10 or 15 minutes most of the accidents happened. Now, we can say, actually, and then so we got a hypothesis based on the science. Well, They've been driving for 200 miles, miles. All their activation patterns are as driver. It's taken several minutes for them to reset themselves to be loaders. So that's why we're getting the accidents. Yeah. So what we did was to put into the training program, every time you were trained how to load and unload, you had to strap on a heated weightlifter's belt. Okay. Yeah. So these have got gel pads that you plug in. So actually people want to wear them as well, which is part of it. That physically stiffens you up, so it's a good idea anyway, but it's a ritual. So the ritual now is you get out of your cab, you now strap on the belt. That changes the way you see the world. And we actually, I think, over half deck accidents as a result of that. Yeah? Now, again, you can see the process, all right? It's understanding how systems and people actually work and building from that. We had another one which, is, which I really enjoyed, all right? This was in North Sea Oil. Um, so we were getting increasing accidents due to liquid spillage on rigs. Now, when I say liquid spillage, I mean liquid nitrogen. Right. Yeah, which kind of like has, shall we say, a certain amount of negative context in terms of brittleness and everything else. All right. You don't want this to happen. Now, you could do all the training you wanted, but what we needed to people is make people more aware. So what we did, everybody cycled through head office in Aberdeen about every two to three weeks. So we ran a three-month coffee safety campaign. And, oh, I really enjoyed devising this, by the way. We did it all in the Niblick in St Andrews, which has all the malt whiskies produced in Scotland, and they keep a record of which ones you've drunk, so you never drink the same one twice. And you won't remember after you. So we did most of our design in the Niblick, all right? So it had multiple benefits. And so what we had is we had posters made with the slogan, Coffee Kills with pictures of people with their skin peeling off their face, theoretically after hot coffee had been spilled over them by accident. Yeah. I mean, it was totally over the top and deliberately, 
And then we had company approved coffee cups and company approved trays to carry your coffee, which actually stayed. There are trays designed so you can only carry them in two hands. Right. Which, of course, is what you want. It's, put, it's building safety into design. So we did those, all right? Um, and so we then banned people from making tea or coffee in their own cups. You know, they had to do the company approved procedure. And then one night we thought, how are we going to enforce this? And we suddenly realized that there was an easy way to do it. So the next day we, we asked a few questions and we found all, it's a British phrase called jobsworths. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's from a Bernard Cribbin song. You know, it's more than my job's worth, i.e. the petty-minded bureaucrats. We made them floor coffee safety wardens and give them armbands with coffee cups on them. So you made job's worth, basically. And basically, they leapt out and they hid and found people breaking the coffee rules and people spilt more coffee and everybody got really furious. But everybody became aware of the issue of carrying liquids and it made a discernible difference when they went back on the rig. So that was, we deliberately created failure and awareness of failure in a safe environment and let people do the transference across. That's fucking mind-blowing. Because as, as I'm sitting here listening to that, I'm like, this just sounds like health and safety gone mad. You te- you're like, oh, you know, you've got you've got, you've to make the coffee in a specific way and carry it in a specific mm-hmm. manner. It just sounds Everybody like... Everybody got furious. So what do you think they talked about? Uh, yeah. Safety. So what we did is we radically changed awareness and then they started to have accidents and then they started to realize. But then later on, when they're handling the higher risk chemical. Uh, yeah. wow. Working with an aircraft manufacturer in the States, we did a huge campaign on home safety. Every single home safety example we taught people about and their kids and their, their spouses was based on actual accidents which had happened in the factory. But if they talked about the actual accident, they'd have been defensive. And having done that, we asked them to take the lessons across. Again, that made a discernible difference. Mm. So that that comes from knowing how people learn. That's fascinating. That's fascinating. And and I think what is is interesting about it, 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 it's that point of just, well, you just finished then, knowing how people work. And I think... I think that is something when my profession, we, we, we let ourselves down so much in that we, I think we assume we know how people work when actually we yeah. don't the effort into it. Yeah, you also have, you're also more concerned with how you think people should work than how they do. Yes, yes, exactly. So, for, so I'll, I'll give you another example. We did, I'm, I'm giving you project examples because it's easy to illustrate it, right? So we did a big project on um, mental breakdown in blue light services. I will only say somewhere in England because um, I'll get into trouble if I do anything else. Right? So this is police, firearms officers, firefighters, ambulance drivers. Yeah. Um, and we, the way we did this is, again, we did this continuous micro-narrative capture. We made, we made junior staff ethnographers to senior staff. Mm. So they captured loads and loads of stories, all right, but into a quantifiable framework. I don't believe in qual research. This is quant. Right. Yeah. So people self-interpret their own story into a quantitative framework. So I can scale that very, at a very low cost, yeah, which is what I want. I want This is complexity theory. I need multiple observations to form any valid conclusion. Yeah. Yeah? So what we actually found is that the main reason for mental breakdown was the health and safety regulations, not the job. Mm. And the reason is the safety officers had devised rules based on a sort of normal distribution of what had happened or gone wrong in the past. And the trouble is, most safety is in the tails of a Pareto distribution, not the centre of a Gaussian distribution. Yeah. 
Yeah, particularly in hospitals where you got multi-morbidity. So what it meant is exceptions were more common than the norm. Mm. And so people had to break the rules to get the job done. Mm. And then they were putting themselves at risk if they were caught breaking the rules. And we got this extensively in the nursing profession at the moment as well, because the rules are just, they're, they're, they're constructed based on an idealized engineering model of how things should be. They don't reflect the reality of actual conditions or the way in which human beings can make judgment. So the trouble is once you get it, people into that, then breaking the rules becomes the norm and then people break the rules when they shouldn't. Yeah. Yeah. So, for example, in military environments and military get this stuff a lot more than civilians. Yeah. Is um, they have a rule about who can break the rules and what you do on the other side of the boundary. And we put that in several times. So, for example, in the Marines, all right, I teach at Quantico whenever I'm down in DC. Um, you know, if the battlefield plan breaks down, capture the high ground, stay in touch, keep moving. Yeah. Those are heuristics. Yeah. So the work we've been doing on safety, for example, is okay, when, yeah, and I'll give you an example from my aircraft manufacturer because we went to the board with the problem. And so they created a simple rule. If an engineer with 20 years service feels they should break a rule and somebody with at least 10 years service agrees with them and they record it, and we made that easy with an app, then they can break any rule. But then they follow these heuristics and we pulled the heuristics from engineers' stories over the last 40 years. Yeah. And again, that made a radical reduction in actual accidents because it reflected the reality of the way things work. And I, it was actually, I was listening to one to, to you, I think, speak on, I think it was Rebel Wisdom. I might be wrong. Um, but, uh, you, you know, a pop. Yeah, I've been on that. They have some very less salubrious people on it. All right. But um, yeah, I've been on that one. That was a good one. I enjoyed it. I thought it was really good. It was the one where you were talking about, I believe, your daughter and you tied her to, or your son, you tied her to. Yeah, that was my daughter. Yeah, and that and that was a story where you kind of said about building heuristics. Um, yeah, build- and that was a climbing one. I mean, it's a, because I mean she was about three at the time. Yeah, and we we climbed to the top of a Welsh castle, and I dangled her over the top of the castle, holding on to her reins. All right, to scare the living daylights out of her mother, which it had achieved. All right, but she accidentally dropped her cuddly toy rabbit. So it goes down 20 feet, lands on a ledge, all right? Now, this is the rabbit without which we cannot sleep at night, all right? And I am now, given the way my family do things, all right? Yeah, they'll come on my deathbed to remind me of the day I did this, all right? So I was then a climber, right? That was my hobby. So from a climber's point of view, a castle wall is nothing. Yeah, yeah it's vertical. Yeah. It's got handholds. So I tied it to the flagpole with the reins and went over the side, collected the rabbit, came back up, handed it over, got a big cuddle, all right? Um, then got arrested by the police as we came out of the castle um, and ended up in the police station drinking tea and coffee and swapping father-daughter stories because they were on my side ultimately. And then I suddenly remembered we'd left my wife in the castle in a state of panic, but that's another story. The point is when I went over the castle wall, I suddenly repeated what I hadn't said to myself for 30 years, three points of contact, three points of contact, three points of contact, mm. which gets driven into you when you first learn to climb. And then you're safe. Yeah. And it's like what that bring back to that kind of coffee example, it kind of like you'd created those heuristics, but then they the the people themselves have made had connected that heuristic from coffee to the higher risk liquid. They've made the connection. It's I mean it's a connection by metaphor and effect. Right. Yeah. 
And I mean, we do it as well. So some of the stuff we do sometimes is we, we run, you can tell I grew up on Star Trek doing my maths homework to Star Trek when I was a kid, right? The first generation. So we, we created, we did a big one on these myself and Gary Klein in Singapore Army is the best illustration. So we got three teams. We present them with a situation. They then have to do a situational assessment and come up with a course of action. While they're doing that, the human games teams feeds them new data. So they never get stable data because that's the reality. Right. Yeah. Then they go away from there and come back and whatever they, whatever they came up with turns out to be disastrously wrong. Yeah. It takes about 10 minutes to find something they missed in everything you gave them and extrapolate from that. Mm. Rinse and repeat three times. By the time people have finished that, they're scanning 20% more data than at the start. Mm. So putting people in simulation environments where they're doomed to fail, which of course is what happened to Kirk in the famous test, all right, where he cheated, mm. yeah, that's what you're doing. And in more exotic cases, we've actually built science fiction universes um, based on what our anthropologists have discovered in a company. So we study the company. We then sit down with scientists who write fictional universes for science fiction writers. I used to work with Jack Cohen, who was brilliant at this, and regrettably dead now. But he did the whole science from Anne McCaffrey's Pern series and for Terry Pratchett. So really? he did the science of Discworld. Oh, yeah, I got to meet Terry through Jack. That was wonderful. Right? Wow. Um, so either way, so we and then, then we put managers into the fictional universe, which is actually their own company. Mm. But because it's fictional, they explore options and think about things in a way they would never do if it was the actual company. Yeah. And we continuously capture all of that learning in narrative form. So we've got a narrative database to inform practice thereafter. It's amazing. That's crazy because you're, you're kind of giving them that, that kind of sense of they feel psychologically safe because it's not to them. It's not about their, their company. It's about this fictional environment. And remember in military environments, I mean, this is a point I generally make. One of the big problems we've had since systems thinking came in to replace scientific management in the eighties. It's quite interesting when people criticize scientific management, they're generally criticizing systems thinking. Right. Yeah, if you go back, so, I mean, I worked with Peter Drucker, taught leadership with Peter Drucker, right? Um, scientific management actually respected apprentice models of management development, whereas systems thinking tried to get rid of them, right? So either way, so yeah, if I should stop running down little side angles because I forget where I'm going with this. Where was I going with this? Um, okay, so what happened when systems thinking came in um, is we tried to get into this, we, we tried to get away from human beings as let's use the jargon wetware and try and make them software. Yeah. All right. Um, so the assumption is you can program, but critically we got rid of the apprentice model. Yeah. All right. So it used to be you joined a company, you moved around between departments, you expected to stay there for a long period of time. You weren't swapping in and out of companies every three years. Mm. Yeah. And you weren't doing, you know, BA in business studies and MBA from an elite school, joining a consultancy firm, then coming sideways to run something, because then you can only run it on numbers. Mm. And it was, sorry, I'm jumping around a bit, but it was quite significant. I worked a lot with Unipart, and they said one of the big problems was when German engine, German car companies took over British car companies, they put the in German car companies, the chief engineer is the CEO. In British companies, the accountant is the CEO. That's the career path. So nobody respected that. And the cultural difference was huge, right? You see the same. If I go into a hospital in the US, 
you'll see a, the doctors, it's the Kelly figure if you go back to house, right? The, the heads of the hospital are all ex-doctors. Yeah. So they understand things in a way that nobody can understand things through spreadsheets, mm. yeah, all through manuals, all through documents. And if you reduce that sort of apprentice learning, you put a huge burden on the written material. And this applies to safety and everything else. It's deeply problematic. So another illustration. I've written two ISO 9001 manuals in my life. Okay. Yeah. Um, never ever want to do it again. And I remember getting called in by the CEO and he said, we've got to pass ISO 9001. You're going to write the manual. And I said, but I'm, last time I was in this office, you were screaming at me for breaking the rules and you know, I got away with it. So why do you want me to write this? And he said, oh, poachers make the guest best gamekeepers. <laughs> and he said, you'll probably write something people like you will follow and I want to pass it. So, okay, take the burden on, right? And he said, if I give it to health and safety, quote unquote, we'll have a 15 volume manual with training courses and nobody will ever comply with it and we'll be in a mess. I can preach to that being the truth. Yeah. So I went away and I wrote, I think it was 75 pages, which was a series of do case statements. I'm still at my heart a programmer. All right. Do case is a wonderful programmer. So yeah, if this, we do this, if this, we do this came to the end. If anything else happens, you bring in these two people and you agree what to do and you document it. That was when I first started to work with threes. So I basically said, these are all things we can predict and can have in terms they're ordered so we can determine what people should do. But anything else will create a process which can look at the context and make the right decision. Mm. Yeah? And that worked really, really well. I also had a black manual. It was a separate manual, which was all the people who had to be removed from the building if the quality inspectors arrived because they couldn't be trusted to give the right answers. And because we were a secure establishment, we could question credentials and we could literally evacuate responsible managers. And we trained their nominated deputies in how to answer questions from quality inspectors. No way. And so I, after that, I got sold to go and do it for one of his mates' companies. I could probably have a career doing this and I decided I just didn't want to do it anymore. But I, I give that as an illustration, right? First, we had a manual which was workable. Yeah. Is it recognized that in a complex world, it's too context specific for you to codify in advance? So we forced a divergent decision process with high transparency into that point. Yeah. And the other thing is kind of like people will gain the system. Yeah. yeah. So don't try and force. If you've got good, I'm not the most profitable business unit 10 years running. All right. I can get away with letting murder if I want. <laughs> not only that i'm reasonably bright and i've got access to knowledge and i can have a lot of fun with you all right i mean ibm personnel never forgave me for proving that astrology was more accurate than myers briggs in measuring team performance and that they paid for me to do that over six months no way no experiment way. oh yeah it was a lot of fun that was so do not upset bright people with access to technology who feel mischievous all right it's 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 always a mistake <laughs> Oh, that's genius. I love that. I am um, oh, I could just listen to your stories all day, but I, I am keen for you to kind of get into the Kenevin framework as you've you've touched on it a few times. Like maybe like I'd be interested to like when when was that? Was it was it a natural progression? Was did Kenevin come over years or was it like a we uh, need this, we need something overnight? Uh, 22 years old now in its five domain form. It's actually about 25, 26 years old overall. So it was initially a response when I first met Max Basso to his iSpace. 
And then I started to use an early version of it. So the first ever article with five domains, well, there was there's two or three book chapters when it was a sort of conventional cross, yeah? And the five domains became critical. The central area is vital to Kinevin. That first comes out in a series of three articles on innovation, I think in 1990. And then Complex Acts of Knowing, which was one of the first big knowledge management ones, that's where it really forms. So the way, so uh, the key thing about Kinevin is it wasn't a, a framework built on a one-time study of a limited number of companies. It was theory applied to practice, more theory, more practice. So it's evolved. Yeah, I think its last major iteration was last March, because there was one unresolved conflict in Kinevin, and I finally resolved that last March. And that's how you work with frameworks, by the way, is they work for people, but there's things which aren't quite right. Um, but you work out how to do that downstream. Yeah. What so that's you, what the origin. Lingering, what was the lingering thing that you weren't happy with? Um, it was the central domain, what was called disorder, and yeah. is now called apparatic. Okay. Right? So I always knew that central domain was critical. So, I mean, one way to explain this, and this is 101 Kinevin, right? It, Kinevin defines three types of system, ordered systems, complex systems, and chaotic systems. This is the three plus one version of Kinevin. Yeah? Um, so ordered systems are highly constrained, so everything is predictable. You can determine in advance what the right thing is to do. That's best and good practice. Right? Um, a chaotic system in Kinevin is a system without effective constraint. So if you fall into that accidentally, it's a disaster, but it never lasts for long. It's not a permanent state. A lot of people think chaos is always there. It isn't. It's very rare in humans. We don't like the absence of constraints. A complex system is one where everything, the, the key phrase is everything is entangled with everything else. Okay. Uh, Melissa Gerardo has a wonderful way of describing this. She says it's like bramble bushes in a thicket. Mm. Everything is connected with everything else. You know, you can't sort it out except by breaking it. So that's a complex system. In a complex system, everything is context specific, whereas in an ordered system, things are context free in, in the main. Okay, yeah. yeah. And in a complex system, there's no linear relationship between cause and effect. So the same thing doesn't happen again the same way twice. And the only thing I can say with any certainty is anything I do will have unintended consequences. Okay. Now, once you know that, you are now morally responsible for them, mm-hmm. even though you couldn't predict them. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Now, a metaphor for that. And sorry, and, and within that order is put next to chaos because if you make a system too bureaucratic, then people like me come along and start to break the rules in ways you don't discover, and then rule breaking becomes a normal, then one day, bang, you fall over the edge into chaos. Mm. Yeah. So that's over constraint. I can give you more IBM examples if you want. So a metaphor for that is solid, liquid, and gas. Okay, yeah. The order is solid, you know. Complexity is liquid, chaos is gas, right? And that is quite a good way because, you know, something which is solid is fairly stable. You know how to manage it. Liquid has to be contained, right? Which is actually true for complexity and chaos. Well, everything, everything is permeating everything else. It's impossible to control. And with that comes the concept of a phase shift. If you remember latent heat, so you heat water up to 100 degrees at a constant temperature. It doesn't become steam until you put more heat in. Yeah, and when it snows, heat is thrown into the atmosphere, which is why my generation can smell snow coming. My children can't, right? So it throws out heat, yeah, before the liquid becomes a solid. 
So in Kinevin, those three things, a phase shift, something is ordered or it is complex or it is chaotic. And there's an energy shift to manage it. But then the other big thing within, um, within this, if you know the triple point, coming back to physics and chemistry, it's a point which is at a balance of temperature and pressure where it's equiprobable, whether something can become solid, liquid or gas. Okay. Now in Kinevin, that's a central domain, which is called the apparatic domain. Right. Right? No. Aporia means an unresolvable question. Okay. Right? And the whole point, and this is Derrida, I'm quite proud of this, I got Derrida into common language speak in the Agile community. Nobody else has done that in the history of humanity. Right? So what Derrida famously says is that a question to which you know an answer isn't a question, it's a process. The only valuable questions are ones where you don't know the answer until you think or act differently. And that's why that central domain is key. So if you look at the EU field guide on complexity, which I wrote, so I was a principal author along with Alessandra, basically says in a crisis, you move things into the apparatic domain then decide what can go into the other domains. And then we have two more subtleties. One is we divide order into two, but then it's a gradient, not a phase shift. Okay. between clear and complicated so that's where everybody knows what to do and only experts know what to do and then we also have you know there's one more line you can draw which has liminality or boundary spanning type conditions but that's a more detailed version one of the important things about Kinevin is you can draw it on the back of a table napkin from memory mm. and that's key for sense making but as you get to know it you can go deeper and deeper and deeper there's a lot more in it than that first first draft I've I, I also like I'm I'm kind of in that process now. Like I remember the first time I came across Kenevin was probably maybe about a year ago. And then I remember the first time I was like, okay, yeah, cool. There's these four, these four criteria, and then and then like keep coming back to it over the years and each time watching another video of yours or listening to you on another podcast, and I'm like, oh, I I understand a little bit more of this now, and, and it gets deeper and deeper. You're, you're so right. It really does. You're emphasizing now the fifth domain. Right. So they're really emphasizing it heavily because we, we have people who would talk about the five quadrants of Kinevin, which makes you worry a little bit about their education, the idea you can have five quadrants. <laughs> or, or make it two by two because they felt more comfortable with that. That central domain is absolutely key. Yeah. yeah. So that central d- domain, which previously was called, was previously disorder. disorder, is now it's like you've got a question, but you don't know the answer. Or you deliberately create it. So, for example, if you we've put all of our methods into an open source wiki. Yeah. Um, which is good because it means lots of people are in getting involved in developing it. So one of the conflict resolution tools, for example, we created called the Trioptican which is designed to handle conflict between experts in 24 hours. There's a whole animation on that now in the wiki, which we could never have done, but somebody just did it. I I like open source because it gets that sort of stuff, right? But what what we got in that is actually what we call physical, ascetic, and linguistic aporia. So there are lists of them, Mm. all right, of ways to create those moments, all right? And then that becomes kind of like the first thing you want to do in in a crisis, well, I'll go EU handbook now. If you are in a major crisis, that's the only time leaders should make decisions. Yeah. Yeah. On normal day-to-day basis, the role of a leader is to coordinate and distribute decision-making. But in a crisis, you make decisions rapidly in order to keep options open. 
So the New Zealand Prime Minister did this really well at the start of COVID. She broke the law to lock down fast, but that gave her more options, whereas the UK, US and Sweden didn't. Mm -hmm. So by the time they did it, there were fewer options available. Um, But then you shift into apparatus, so you shift into that domain, you ask really difficult questions, and then you identify what can be ordered, what can be complex, and then within order, what's clear and what's complicated, and that leaves residue conflict when you re- and you resolve that in different ways. So you don't make an assumption that you know the solution. That's 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 the key thing in Aparia. It forces you to think before you classify. How, how do you kind of, how would you envision, so like, so if I was a, as a safety professional, I look at your, your the, the, uh, Kenevin, and I think, wow, I really want to use this in the workplace. You're, do you, do you, would you kind of envision, like, if I was to go, how, how do I use this in the workplace, David? Would you kind of say it is looking at the workforce on what's ordered, you know, what goes is in clear, what goes in complicated, or is it that all, because we, we have this saying kind of that bounced around a lot within the kind of new safety that work is complex, but, but that, that was, the whole aspects which are complicated. Yeah, and that was going to be my, my question. I think the key, yeah, the key thing, the Prince Canavan principle is you break things down to the lowest level of granularity compatible with allocating them to a domain. Right, okay. Right, so for example, if people have an argument to say, well, when, you know, this, this is complex, some people think it's complicated. You say, well, what would it would look like if it was complicated? What would it look like if it was complex? And that will break it apart, yeah? But you need different solutions. So that's one way. Um, there's other things we can do. So for example, our ethnographic software, which allows us to map attitudes to safety, yeah. can also use multi-agent input to map onto Kinevin. So you get you get to know who thinks, you don't have a workshop where the strongest voice will speak out. Yeah. You can use your whole workforce in a different way. And by the way, that's done indirectly, not directly. Yeah, yeah we ask them questions as a result of which we can algorithmically allocate to get a preliminary, right? And we can also do attitude measurement on that. But um, if you just do a search on Google, on or Google Scholar, if you want the academic side, on Kinevin and safety, you'll find loads of examples where people have just used it. Yeah. I'm quite relaxed about this. You know, I could get really stroppy and say, well, I didn't really mean you to use it like that. But my view is it's helping people make sense. Yeah, we'll make them aware. We also run training courses, but... The thing I'm really proud of is the sheer number of people who picked it up and used it without training or reference to me. Yeah, that, that and that was interesting that, that you kind of naturally came on to that point because that was my that's kind of my journey at the moment. It's like I'm reading it and I'm like I'm kind of comfortably uncomfortable with it. I'm like I read it and I'm kind of like this kind of makes sense to me and I feel like it's an athletic moment. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really good. I didn't put that together, but yeah, yeah. I feel like I, I can use it. Like I, I read it and I look at it and I listen to you and I. And the more and more I go, okay, I feel like I, I can use this. But then there's part of me that goes, I feel like I should maybe go on on some training course. But then, yeah, I, good. And once you're done, by the way, there are two other major frameworks within the Pantheon. So Kenevin is just the first one. Great. I look forward to that. I told you about 20 years when I've worked out Kenevin and then I'll come to the other two. The latest one is coming from quantum mechanics. That's my baby at the moment. So, Right. And that actually is very relevant to safety. It's constructor theory. So to, to simplify it, 
it says you don't start off by deciding what sort of company you want to be. You start off by deciding what sort of company you don't want to be. Mm. And that creates some boundary conditions and it's quite easy to get consensus. Yeah. That's true. Really um, yeah. And then you identify what are called constructors, which is also in our language, safe to fail experiments and see which actually produce replicable outcome within that counterfactual space. Mm. So that, that, I mean, I'm, that, that's going to be a back of a t- table napkin model as well. I've got a conference call about that after this. But again, the whole principle of sense making, which is what I call my stuff with a hyphen, that's important, is, is the, the way I define it is how do you make sense of the world so you can act in it? And with that comes a concept of sufficiency. You never know all, everything you would like to know, but when do you know that you know enough to take different classes of action? And that's what Kenevin is about. It's what Flexus Curves is about. It's whatever I decide to call the new one, but it's probably going to be one of the Welsh words for estuary. Well, an estuary is a really good metaphor for complexity. Okay. Yeah, because the tide goes in, the tide goes out. There are multiple rivers coming in. You have to map sandbanks continuously, granite cliffs less frequently. You have to work out things from patterns on water. So it's a great metaphor. So I've got sea charts around the walls. You can't see them here. Because yeah. we're working on a on a visualization for the software, which will actually contain the the software equivalent of I've seen ripples on the water, so the wind is coming. Hmm. Yeah, um, which is weak signal detection. I really like like there's another one that you've said before about I think it was, I think it was a metaphor for for kind of making change about a a, a wild meadow where change. Oh yeah, rewilding. Yeah. It's about but to put it into real layman's. I mean, I'm I'm rough as me. I I kind of when I heard that that kind of you're saying around you know plant loads and loads of stuff and then see what what works for me. It was kind of throw loads of shit at the wall and see what sticks. That's what yeah, that's, it, actually, yeah. that's actually from the Bible. That's the parable of the sower. Okay. Let's right. see. Uh, sorry, I, I had a mother who was a good atheist, but decided if I didn't know the Bible by heart, I wouldn't understand European literature. And I sort of punished her by becoming a Catholic, but never mind. All right. So I know my Bible. All right. So the parable of the sower is fascinating. So basically, the seed is cheap. So you throw it around and see where it grows. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't say, I don't think throwing shit at the wall is a good idea unless you want to manure the place. All right. Sure. The principle is you you don't know where things will grow. So you do lots of small things and see what works, which is a complexity principle. And the things which work, you amplify quickly. Mm. And you, that, you don't assume they'll work if you start the process again. They probably won't. Mm. And then so one of the, it's, a, it's a three-part rule we have, all right? So the first question you ask is, what can I change? Yeah. And that may be have a time horizon on it, but why are you worrying about things you can't change it's a waste of everybody's time mm-hmm. i mean it may make consultants happy and they'll have workshops and talk about it and put stuff on flip charts but your first question is what can i change in this context all right second thing is out of the things where i can change where can i monitor the impact of any change mm-hmm. because changing things where you can't monitor the results is just stupid and then the third question is out of the things where i can monitor where could i rapidly amplify success or dampen failure mm-hmm. And if you just keep asking that question, that's a really powerful set of three questions. Yeah. yeah. And, and I really love the, because 
does th- those kind of like natural metaphors, you think that that naturally comes because you're rooting everything you do in those natural sciences? So you, it just I mean, we have picked up on the rewilding concept. I'm talking about rewilding agile a lot at the moment, mm. which is not a return to the original. It's a rebalancing. Rewild is getting the balance right again. And we, we've got the balance too far focused on the explicit engineering approaches to the company and not enough on the humanistic and complex systems act aspects of the company. So we need to rebalance it, not throw away the old stuff, but realise its limits and get some balance back in. Yeah. There is a lot of that, that you've kind of touched on it a few times, there's a lot of that like looking for that one silver bullet, which means like, now it's not agile. You know the fads and the and all of that. So we we don't like agile anymore. Agile is rubbish. Safety really. Well, it's probably not just safety. Maybe it's just general management. Giving agile a bad habit. There's this complete and utter nonsense by a bunch of, to be quite honest, second-rate agilists. All right, which is called agile two. They couldn't get any of the original manifestos writers to take part, so they claim this is a good thing, not a bad thing. But never mind. All right, there's a lot of this crap around. Yeah, and it. Do you think that is kind of all deep? Because we we have this ongoing just debate that just seems to keep coming up in in the safety in the safety one versus two, which for me is frustrating because I think I think Eric is very clear and uh, he's probably one of he's the one person that, that said specifically safety one and two. There are obviously a lot of other people, but he is very clear. I think in his writing, it's one and two, but yet. There's just this nothing. And there's some other stuff which isn't in one or two, which is things like attitude measure. All right. So I think that's the right approach. I think the problem Agile has got as a movement. Um, I'll give an illustration. One of the feeds into Agile was DSDM. There was there were three feeds. There was DSDM, XP, and Scrub. Right. All right. Now DSDM, I was one of the three founders of back in the 1990s, I think. All right. And basically. Yeah, Ed Holt pulled together myself, strategy, data sciences, and my equivalent in Logica, and we were deadly competitors. And we set up DSTM as a standards body for RAD, JAD, and object orientation. Mm. But the point is, it was set up by competitors. Yeah, it wasn't set up by one company. Mm. Now, that had dissipated a bit, but by the time you get to Snowbird, all right, the only thing which is codified at a level of abstraction, so it will diffuse quickly, those are Boisseau terms, all right, is Scrum. I mean, XP is much more at the heart of Agile, but nobody in XP can explain what they do to ordinary mortals, so they have a problem on scaling. So what then happened is Scrum scaled as a proprietary method, then everybody started to copy it. So everybody wants their own proprietary method. I mean, SAFE is the ultimate antithesis of of Agile. And so what people are now trying to do with these beyond Agile, Agile Next Generation, Transcendental Agile, Agile 2, is they want to create a proprietary approach around their consultancy. They're trying to repeat Scrum or SAFE. And no field advances in that way and that's why agile is in a particularly bad place at the moment sounds reminiscent of safety if i'm honest um sounds very yeah, safety's a bit better i mean we're we're chatting at the moment with two or three of the big um, pmi bodies on a complexity approach to project management okay. um which we may announce something on shortly because that's one of the big areas it strongly relates to safety all right where you want micro observations and what we're trying to do is to say there's nothing wrong with Prince 2 within boundaries, but we need stuff where those boundaries fail. Mm. Yeah, or with PBOC or whatever, right? 
And I think safety just needs something similar. I think the problem you got with safety one and safety two, and this is a bit unfair, but I, I want to make a point, is that they're terribly instrumental. Uh, they're, they're all about designing a system which will work rather than designing an ecosystem from which systems will work will emerge. I'll repeat that, right? They're all about designing a system based on how things should be rather than designing an ecosystem in which the good things are more likely to emerge and be practiced. Yeah. So, for example, our work on attitude mapping comes before safety one or safety two, because if people's attitudes aren't safety aware, you've got a bigger problem. Yeah. And you'll constantly be trying to put in regulations, the whole concept of what we call vector theory of change. And something like positive deviance is one type of vector theory. I think it's overhyped, but it's one valid approach. You need to get things in place which are natural to the way people work and, you know, scale them and codify them, but don't destroy them through instrumentalism. And then you can see what you need to do on the And safety one and safety two would be a lot better if you just started with attitude maps. Yeah, it was interesting that when it was kind of when you said earlier, attitude is leading and compliance is lagging. It was, you know, that's been a, what's leading and what's lagging indicators for a company has been just a, an, an ongoing conversation and debate for many years within our profession. And I'm not sure anyone's really turned around and said, can we work out how to measure? Yeah, they, they confuse things you can monitor with things you can manage. So the, the, the common characteristic of systems thinking and system and, you know, one and safety one and two have come from a systems thinking background. I mean, virtually everything we've got around at the moment goes back to systems dynamics and cybernetics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And some of the better stuff goes back to Chetland and soft systems. But that's where it come from. And the characteristic of all of that is to decide how things should be and then try and close the gap. Mm. What complexity does, which is very different, and I'll give you another metaphor for this in a second, is it starts off by describing where we are and identifying in which direction we should travel. Mm. And then let it emerge as you kind of... And then that leaves you open to novelty on the way and it leaves you far more adaptive. I mean, if you want a simple way, I call this the Frozen 2 strategy. So if you haven't seen Frozen 2, you've now got an excuse to go and watch it. It's a great complexity movie. You don't need to have grandchildren or children for an excuse to watch Frozen 2, so go watch it, all right? I'm going to watch um, it right now. You, you, my wife's going to love the fact that you've just said watch Frozen 2. And there's this wonderful scene in the middle of it. So the real heroine, I think, of the Frozen sequence is actually the younger sister without magic. Right. Yeah, it's not Elsa. And there's this point in the middle where she, this lovely, so beautifully sung as well, which is all I can do is do the next right thing. <laughs> All right, so I'm facing extreme uncertainty, extreme stress. I don't know what the right solution is, but I can do the next right thing and then look again. Now, in complexity, that's what Stuart Kaufman calls the adjacent possibles. <laughs> so what we do when we're doing attitudes to safety is we map attitudes and we map where they are, and then we, we find the adjacent areas where people could move to. Then we shift them there rather than trying to shift them to the ultimate goal. Mm. Yeah, And that that's... Yeah, that movie's good. I mean, actually, it's generally good on complexity. The stuff with the dam is brilliant to understanding catastrophic failure and the opportunities provided, all right? So, sorry, I'm, I've got into this, all right? And, yeah, it's, it's, I love it's, this. Please tell me more about Frozen 2. Yeah. So I think that, that that's probably the most important thing. So for the last, I say, 
And I, I had the privilege of teaching leadership with Peter Drucker, which was a huge privilege. Right? Um, and the thing both of us were agreed on is that complexity theory has a lot in common with scientific management, and both of them are opposed to systems thinking. Because what scientific management did, and people don't realize that Taylor was terribly progressive. I mean, they all think he was somebody evil. I mean, look at what Taylor was replacing, for Christ's sake, which was slave labor. So he wanted to dignify human labor, and he did that through automation. He removed a lot of the, you know, the, the mind-numbing stuff and replaced it with automation. Yeah? And the assembly line was really progressive compared with what had gone before. Very few people were in the craft industry. Most of them were bloody digging holes, all right? Um, and then the other assumption was that management, you know, apprentices would become you know, craftsmen, craftsmen become supervisors, supervisors would become managers, people would grow up in the same company, people knew everything which is going on, right? So you automated what you could automate, and the rest you actually, and there were no three-year plans, no five-year plans. I mean, that was an institution of systems thinking, and why on earth American industry adopted the planning cycle of Soviet Russia, I will never understand. But then the yeah, engineering becomes the metaphor that's where system thinking came from and now everything has to be planned everything has to be structured you know page two of re-engineering the corporation says nothing that's happened in the past has any relevance to the future and we get into we'll just design a system and and you know if, if it gets nasty then you bring in peter Senge and learning organization because that's soft and fluffy and that will make people feel better but that came from mit engineering as well Right. And so, yeah, the concept is what what it did is it tried to remove human judgment. Mm. And what we're doing with complexity is saying, well, there's a lot we can automate. Right. There's a lot we now understand about cognition. We can actually do decision making at scale, which we couldn't do before. So we're less reliant on individuals. But ultimately, human judgment is still in there. Mm. And I think, I mean, I, I keep playing with this on the title of the book, but I'm, I'm half thinking that judgment is the current theme that we need to, you know, it's, it's judgment and discernment, which we're missing. And what most people have tried to do is completely remove human judgment from the process. Yes, yeah, yeah, definitely. And that's a mistake. Yeah, carbon isn't silicon. I'll go back to Star Trek again, all right? If you remember the episode with the Horta. With the, right, the Horta were a silicon-based life form. And yeah, they're, they're, it's different, all right? You can't, that, that's AI. Yeah. Hmm. I think you're right in what you're saying. Like, I, I particularly, I mean, I can only really speak for my career in safety, but that is, that is literally the conversation that we have all the time is, is, is why did these employees we have, they're really stupid. So what we need to do is remove all opportunities where they make the decision to do something yeah. because we know it will be wrong. We assume they're stupid. Um, and, and there's like a lack the result of which is they make decisions outside your formal system in order to get the system to work despite you. Yeah. And and there is such a, a lovely bit in the video that you did explaining uh, Kenevan on the YouTube channel where you've said that if we constantly are just forcing people into doing best practice because we think everything is simple and clear, you'll just piss them off. No, and I just thought you've just well, never... Actually, if you piss them off, I mean, I, I always say to organisations, the cynics are the ones who should care. You listen to them because they're prepared to lose their jobs rather than not tell you the truth. Mm. Right? And people don't like dissent. So people learn... I mean, you know, I le we learned this in IBM, all right? Fundamental rule of IBM was don't fuck the process. Mm. 
So what IBM, your informal networks, because your informal networks can make things work despite the process. Is a lot of this rooted in the fact that we're just really uncomfortable with uncertainty? I think, yeah, and I think part of the reason for that is we, the, the concept of management as a profession rather than a vocation is a real problem. And the, yeah. difference, the difference between those two? Vocation is you're on a journey expecting to constantly learn. The profession is I've now got the qualifications so I can do it. Mm. I, I mean, this is a bit crude, all right? But as I say, business process re-engineering generated the big consultancies and the big consultancies generated the business schools. It all, it all starts there. Mm. All right? And so you get into this, you know, and the case-based approach from Harvard then takes over and dominates. So it's all about spreadsheets and cases and the right answer and structure, yeah. And so, and then you get nonsense and opposition. So, for example, there's a whole bunch of people in Agile who want to get rid of silos. Well, that's really stupid. You can't get rid of silos. If you get rid of silos, everybody has to dumb their knowledge down to the lowest common denominator, and nothing will make progress. It's a lot easier to create informal networks across silos that's because then knowledge will flow in context. So again, yeah, it's it's. The general characteristic, and so I'm coming back to where I started on this, is people say, you know, I've gone and studied 50 leaders and they all appear to have this sort of quality. So then say, well, if we have this quality, then we'll have great leaders. It's the wrong way around. Mm. Yeah, what you're talking about is the emergent property. It's, it's the end point of a journey. It's like the Spotify model. There isn't a Spotify model in Agile. Right? There's a journey Spotify went on and there's an endpoint they reached. You can't replicate their endpoint without going through a similar journey. Mm. Yeah, And I think this is the problem. And we have a whole list of these things you can monitor and these things you can manage. If you look at the things you can monitor, you'll find there are all the things that McKinsey's and like say you should institute in your training. And the answer is you can't institute them. You can trigger the conditions which might give rise to them. Mm. They are, to quote unquote, emergent properties. I just, and I just think that is this, this, this. Um, we we're so uncomfortable with that. Like the, the the whole concept of this emergent property. That I, I don't like when I'm talking to people about about that. So even just saying, you know, safety is just an emergent kind of property of work. Bits are and bits aren't. The danger is you get people. I mean, there's a couple of dangers with people in complexity. One is it's becoming a fashionable word, so we're getting the trivializers along. There's a lot of them. The other problem is there's people who try and take an excuse and say, oh, it's complex, therefore I can't be managed. And well, the answer is you've got that wrong. And you need more management discipline in complexity, not less. Mm -hmm. And there are things we can measure, right? So I think this, yeah, it, it, it's... Uh, one of the ways I often explain this is that the origins of the word manage in English are quite interesting. It comes from an Italian word, yeah? Um, menagere or something. I, my pronunciation is terrible and dyslexic, right? Um, which actually means the ability to ride a horse in dressage. It then gets corrupted by the French. You know, many things have been corrupted by the French, but not as many as have been corrupted by the English to mean household management. Yeah. Right, so that's manage. So what you've got is manage and menage. Now you need to understand that both are important. Mm. And what we've done with systems thinking and safety one and safety two is assume it's all management, yeah. whereas actually people are out there trying to ride horses on the basis of household recipes, and it will never work. Hmm. Never thought, yeah, that. 
when you when you kind of yeah shit i'm kind of blown away by that actually kind of speak and i had a really i had somewhere i wanted to go with it but I've, it, it's left my brain oh where was it no it's gone it's gone okay yeah I'm, I'm a bit i'm a bit i'm a bit speechless about that when you when you kind of break it down like that, it is just in my brain. It's just kind of realised that I've just constantly just been trying to lit well, literally manage. Like that's all we ever try to do. That's all we've ever been trained to do is to manage everything. Trying to show a KPI to a horse yeah. or to your teenage children. Yeah, and that's still, by the way, the best teaching story I've ever created is a children's party story. That is a great one. Yeah, I did. I did like that one. And uh, yeah, How, I, I've got. I've got the point I was going to ask. Actually, if we, because you may, you may have alluded to it, and I think a tweet of yours made me think about it as well. Um, what one thing I find that I think I struggle with is what we're talking about here within kind of complexity theory and and all of this stuff. Is it naturally is quite complex, so it then becomes really difficult for us to explain that to management for example and, and the workplace so is it kind of do we are we really running the risk where's the line i suppose between like oversimplification and i can tell you go back to the 80s all right i'm, I'm closer to 70 now than 60 i've been through this crap all right um when systems thinking came in it was considered an academic esoteric discipline that managers never pay attention to and then three years later it dominates the whole field and that's roughly where we are with complexity at the moment. COVID is a trigger mechanism. People now know about complexity because they've been living it. Yeah. When I used to say before COVID, you need to build your informal networks across silos because they're critical to knowledge sharing, everybody laughed. After COVID, nobody is disagreeing with me because that's what they fell back to. Yeah. And we often say complexity is a science of common sense. So just think about how you manage your families. You know, all the things you do at the work, you'd never do in your family. Mm. and so we we know how to manage complexity because we do it continuously we evolved we evolved as abductive thinkers not inductive thinkers mm. so we're good at complexity we're also bad at conspiracy theories you know there's no upside without a downside but complexity is basically common sense right? <laughs> and there's a limited number of principles and some tools and techniques and it's actually quite simple to acquire and the problem is actually complexity is not complex it's simple but we've made life too complicated, so we can't see it. Well, on, on that note, I think that's an amazing place to probably leave this. We've had you for quite a while, Dave, and I know you've got a, another call coming up. So that, as you mentioned, um, that was kind of mind-blowing. And I think like many other people listening to this, I'm going to have to listen to this a few times before I, I get what we've just spoke about. So thank you very much for that. But um please please keep doing what you're doing um i love it i really enjoy following your stuff um it's been enlightening and mind-blowing thanks very much for your time it's been good thank you very much for coming on i really really appreciate it mate. thank you okay
Okay, peeps. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dave. I hope it made sense. Like I say, Dave does uh, some really t- tell really good stories to kind of help get his point across. Um, it's a really eye-opening chat, and uh, I really love Dave's stuff. So go check out more. Go check out the field guide um, from the uh, European Union that he put out. To so check that out, that's a great resource. Check out his YouTube channel as well. It's awesome, and there's loads and loads of podcasts that he's been on. Um, so go listen to all of those. Um, I think he's a great guy and I think a, a lot of what he talks about, we need to talk about more in safety and risk management as well. Um, shout out to Paradigm Human Performance one last time. Thank you very much for sponsoring the YouTube channel and podcast on rebranding safety. Um, if you need to take your next step uh, in risk management and how your humans and organizations perform together, then go check out uh, Paradigm's website and sign up for the learning organization webinar whilst you're there. If you're looking into uh, developing your professional development or improving your professional development, then check out Project Meletium website will be in the description below as well. It's a mastermind community for people that manage safety, health, risk, etc. It's literally just a rocket up your professional development. So come and try it out with your weekly calls, book clubs, philosophy calls. We do a quarterly event, loads of stuff. Our members are loving it. If you're not quite sure, we're running a month free uh, at the moment so you can get the code in the description but it's basically free for one so that's the word free and then for one in numbers uh, but as soon as you get on the website the code is there right in front of you anyway everything's in the description um, and like i said in the intro um, rebranding safety has gone full-time we've launched risk fluent the company that sits behind it um, so we're now offering consultancy services where you're looking for support into um, the next step in in kind of holistic risk management or your culture improvement or whether you're just looking for some kind of technical safety stuff um, i'm pretty sure we can help and if we can't we'll probably know someone who can help you so go check out rebrandingsafety.com com as well there's loads of stuff on there now and there'll be more stuff coming so happy new year and uh, i hope you all had a lovely break and it's nice to be back a little bit uh, stiff a little bit messy but we'll get back into the flow of things happy new year i'll catch you next week safe the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily reflect the position of the companies. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are examples only based on limited and dated open source information and should not be utilised in real life as the only solution available. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the companies. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored or transmitted in any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic or otherwise, without prior written permission from James McPherson. Thank <laughs> you.